AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of security trends and news. Full video of this program can be found on YouTube by searching for AT&T Threat Track. So, Matt, I understand you've got a story about uh, a wormable remote code execution. It's not exactly a new story, but it's it's a step above the old story. So this is SMB Ghost. Um, everyone who uses CVE numbers calls it 2020-0796. Uh, it was released back in March, and at the time, it was you know considered a, a, a vulnerability to watch out for. You know, patches were issued out of cycle, which is you know. It means it's something that Microsoft really cares about, uh, and it's a bug in SMB. This is something you would use to share files, printers, and other cross things across a network. Um, usually, I mean, I expect to see it inside of a, an internal network. Apparently, some people like to put it on the internet, which I think is a terrible idea. Uh, but anyway, for a while, um, it's been known that the vulnerability exists. It's also been kind of difficult to exploit, and there is now uh, open source code on GitHub. Somebody named Chompy1337 or Chompy Elite, however you want to say that, um, post it there and says it's very unreliable, but it is exploit code. So in the past, it was that, you know, the bug exists. We know it exists. Some people had the code and weren't willing to share it because it was a wormable bug. The last time we had big wormable bugs like this, we had things like WannaCry and NotPetya. It's a big thing. It's not something you just send out into the world lightly. Except now that we have this this code in the world, um, it's not perfect. It doesn't 100% of the time execute the exploit correctly. And, you know, that's a good thing, I guess. The person who posted it said not to use it outside of a lab environment. Use the phrase puppies will die, which I think is probably hacker humor. Um, but also it's it's a serious thing to think about is that this is this is a bug with some real implications. So anyway, there is a patch for this. This is something that has been patched for a while. Uh, at least by Microsoft. I mean, there are people out there who are probably still running unpatched. Uh, it affects Windows 10 and Windows Server, uh, versions 1903 and 1909 of each. Um, so what I would say at this point is really keep an eye on this because even if this version of the bug doesn't work perfectly, we are one step closer to having a version of it that does. So if you haven't patched this yet, now is absolutely the time to patch. This, uh, this does not affect uh, 2004? As far as I, as I read, it affects the 1903 and 1909 versions of both Windows 10 and Windows Server. I, I don't know about 2004. Okay, because uh, 2004 has just started rolling out in the last, you know, four weeks or so. Okay, if, if that's the case, I mean, or, since this was a bug from March, I would expect any, any newer versions to also be patched. To them. That would be a good thing. Cause it, and it seems like these things get patched in March and then get exploited in June. Because uh, you know, WannaCry was patched in March and the exploit came out in, or, you know, the breakout occurred in June. Mm -hmm. This one got patched in March. It's now June and the exploit is out there. Is history repeating itself? It really depends on what we learned from the last time. I mean, yeah. if you were in IT back during WannaCry, hopefully you've learned that lesson and anybody who uh, would stand in your way from allowing you to patch this has also learned something from it, I would hope. I would hope. Yeah. So let's see. What do you think, Andy? Well, I think you're right in taking it as seriously as you are, because the last time we saw a wormable SMB worm like this uh, was pretty serious, as we all know. So I think, you know, it's important to make sure your all your systems are patched so that you're not vulnerable to this. Um, but one aspect of that, I think, for IT folks out there 
is to understand their universe, so to speak, of systems. Because I know uh, an issue that you could run into is you can patch all the machines that you know about or that you can reach, mm -hmm. but inevitably, especially with larger enterprises, there's going to be those machines that are just kind of sitting there. And you know, maybe maybe no one remembers that they're in that closet, or maybe someone lost the key to that closet or something. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, a good step just to you should do this proactively. You should just understand where you know where all your devices are and manages them. Um, but patching is important. But understand the machines that you have on your network that may or may not need to be patched. Yeah, and I think that go along to go along with that, uh, understand which of the devices that you think are just appliances actually run Windows. Because uh, I know that we we heard all sorts of stories of, of very interesting devices that you would not have expected to run Windows that were vulnerable to uh, Eternal Blue and therefore affected by WannaCry. So yeah, um, asset asset control is is a big deal and and definitely something you should be doing already, uh, so that you don't have to do it after the fact and clean up that mess. Andy. Sounds like you've got a story for us related to some Java malware, ransomware in particular, that's using some interesting tricks. What can you tell us? Uh, yeah, you're right. Um, we've got some new ransomware out there um, that's got a little interesting twist, like like you talked about. Um, just just as like a, a quick overview, um, what had happened was a consulting company called KPMG was called in to do incident response for an unnamed uh, educational institution in Europe somewhere. And uh, what they found was that an attacker had actually gone into their network via an internet facing RDP server. Uh, once they got in there, they then installed a backdoor uh, and they were able to get persistence with that backdoor using uh, something called something called image file execution options injection. So uh, image file execution options uh, allows developers to attach debuggers to different processes, you know, for the you know, for purposes of testing and whatnot. So uh, this particular attacker actually attached the back door to the Windows on-screen keyboard process. So when you open that guy, the back door opens. So uh, KPMG was the one who did the actual incident response. The malware itself was actually handed off to BlackBerry, who then actually did the analysis. Uh, and they reported that what they observed was that the attacker actually installed the back door um, via that via RDP, and then just sat and wait, waited for seven days, and did nothing. Uh, and then after those seven days, the attacker then logged in to the, the infected machine, uh, went to other machines uh, that they could, and then deployed the payload, the malware. As you said, the interesting aspect of this story is that the ransomware was actually written in Java, which is a little unusual. You don't typically see Java being used for ransomware, but in this case it was. Um, but the, the real interesting twist here is that the payload was actually compiled in a JImage uh, source file type, which was, it's it's Java image. So if you're familiar with Java, uh, you're familiar with jar files or Java archive files, pretty common. Uh, JImage is similar, but it's actually not, it's not the same, but uh, it's very, it's very much less common. Uh, and it's very uncommon when it comes to developers. Um, so it's, it's kind of the first of its kind as far as that using that particular image format for uh, ransomware. Um, and then for, you know, for those who don't know, what, you know, when you compile code, essentially what that does is it takes all of the libraries and modules that are required to run that application and it just sort of packages it into its own little thing so that you can just drop that onto whatever server or, or computer you need um, that may or may not have those, those uh, packages installed. So it's interesting because, uh, you know, like I said, we don't usually see Java being used for this. And then, you know, we've got this new kind of obscure format 
and um, BlackBerry actually reports that they're seeing an uptick in in ransomware being written in Java and in and Google's relatively new uh, programming language called Go, which is interesting. So we might be on we might be at the beginning of a new interesting chapter in malware, uh, and I, and I thought that's why this this story warranted some discussion. What I'm reading here is that the this particular campaign of ransomware targets educational institutions and software houses, which are I mean, I've, I've heard of it that's affecting educational institutions, not a lot, but software houses, those are both kind of interesting targets. There's not a, a ton of detail um, on, with that particular aspect of it. The write-up that BlackBerry has on their site is actually specifically for uh, the Windows variant for that, that targeted an educational institution, because um, it does actually also target Linux as well. Um, but you're right in that it's a little, it's vague, but it's also interesting. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, if it's a Java, you know, application that's all self-contained, then it ought to pretty much, you know, modulo certain OS underlying things that it might call. But if it ought to run just fine on anything else that runs Java, so it ought to run just fine on Linux probably runs on Macs, you know, might even run on some IoT devices. Yeah, it's... On, on old, old um, soft software, um, not smartphones, but feature phones. Oh, that was yeah. a big deal. It's like, Java runs on your feature phone. Well, I guess now malware does too. <laughs> Maybe, we haven't proven that, but you know. Yeah, yeah. I, that I'm a little less certain that it, the Java environment would be full featured enough to, but, yeah, that's that's actually kind of scary that they're they might be more architecture independent with this type of ransomware. And then just to share a couple more details about the malware, uh, it, it's pretty targeted. So the so BlackBerry has, has found that this this ransomware has actually been active since I think it's December of 2019. So it's been in the wild now for about six months. And this is the first we're hearing of it, and it's also not now that now that it's been discovered, it's also not discovered, you know, in a plethora of other places. So it's pretty targeted in that the malware authors seem to be, you know, holding it a little close to the vest. They're only using it for very specific targets. Um, you take that into account with the fact that um, it's it's done mostly. It's not automated. It's it's done mostly manually. So the attacker actually finds a vulnerable RDP server um, or an exposed one. You know, gets into the network. Uh, the, the article talks about the write-up talks about how you know they managed to get local administrator on that box to install the backdoor to disable uh, antivirus, uh, and then they come back a week later and manually um, start the back uh, start the payload or unleash the payload. So it's pretty targeted, which is a another wrinkle, another interesting wrinkle to this whole thing. Yeah, well, and another reason not to have RDP open to the internet. Very true. Yes. Yes. How many times do we have to say that? I, I have a feeling that, that this won't be the last time, Jim. Probably not. So I'll mention I'll mention it's called it's called the Tycoon. It's called Tycoon Ransomware. Um, I think BlackBerry named it that because when you opened up the actual pack, the Java the J image uh, package or whatever you call it, um, there were a few files in there that that had Tycoon in the file name or the directory name or something. But I thought it was interesting that the, there, there, are, there are a couple variants of this particular ransomware. And then the early variants, um, the file extensions were .regrum from, oh, oh. from The Shining. 
Mm -hmm. uh, which I thought I was thinking, well, why not just call it the bedroom ransomware? You know, that'd be so much more dastardly. But in any, in any case, um, another aspect of the earlier variants actually is that the attackers were using the same uh, encryption key for mm. everything. So what that means is if you decrypt one, you can decrypt all that have that same variant. Uh, newer versions of the Tycoon ransomware actually have, have adjusted and adapted to, you know, to avoid that. So now that you, know, you can't really do that anymore. Um, and then the newer versions of this of the ransomware actually they, the file extensions are I think it was Thanos was one of them and Grinch dot, dot Thanos and dot Grinch so that was a little funny um, and then another interesting little twist of this guy is typically with ransomware you know you 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 get hit unfortunately and then you get a little message on your screen that kind of says you know here here's what's going on this is my Bitcoin you know wallet address you know pay me my money um, it's usually what you get. What you don't usually get is instructions on how to buy Bitcoin. Usually it's just sort of, you know, figure it out and do it or else. Uh, and I thought it was a little interesting. Blackbird provides a nice screenshot of the, of the message you get. And it actually provides you a little bit more guidance on how to do so. And I thought that was a nice touch. Well, I mean, if you are in this criminal business, if people can't pay you because they don't understand how to get Bitcoin, then I guess you don't get paid. Uh, you know, I've actually have heard of, of um, at least one of the ransomware that did that. And I think uh, whatever market they were directing people to actually put up a message. Like if you're here because of ransomware, you're gonna to wanna to read this information we have about ransomware and why we're not the people who are scamming you right now. Little disclaimer. Little disclaimer. Cause I imagine if you're not very technically savvy, everybody who's, you know, if they send you to this website, you assume that this is the criminal's website. So Jim, tell us about this new uh, TLS issue that we're seeing. The issue got opened on the 1st of June and the new TLS folks patched it pretty quick, but it looks like it could be a, a very serious vulnerability. It turns out in their implementation of TLS 1.3, which is the latest version of TLS and which is hopefully the version that you know, folks are using to encrypt their you know, web traffic running on their website and so forth. But the way that the GNU folks implemented it, it turns out that it, one of the features of GNU TLS is the possibility to resume a session. And the, there was a miss, basically a implementation error the way that the GNU guys did it. And it was possible to resume the session without having the master key that was used to generated to initially start the session to begin with. And what this would allow is a machine in the middle attack. If you didn't need the master key to resume the session, then it, it does take a little knowledge of encryption to do it, but it would have been possible for uh, somebody to intercept, you know, the traffic and do a, a machine in the middle attack. Um, fortunately, it's been patched, and and those patches are out. I, I know that at least on Ubuntu, the the Ubuntu distribution, those patches came out on the third or the fourth of June. The problem is. You know, if somebody did a 
used static, it tried to statically compile these libraries into their application, or if somebody didn't get the message and, and get patched, this vulnerability is there. Now, the vulnerability is actually only in their implementation. It's not, fortunately, it's not a protocol vulnerability. Okay. So, folks using, for example, OpenSSL to implement TLS 1.3 aren't going to be vulnerable to this, but it does it does look like it could be a relatively serious issue uh, for folks that haven't patched that. Uh, not aware of, you know, any active exploitation of it, but it is something to be aware of. Yeah, I'm reading the steps to reproduce from the, the GitLab um, write-up of it. This is... <laughs> It's as bad as it sounds, I guess. Um, dang. Yeah, I, it's it really, you know, it, it could be scary, especially, you know, if folks aren't automatically patching, you know, like most of the Linux distros are going to push this out. And if you have, you know, a cron job that is doing nightly checks, okay, you're probably okay there. But if you're not doing, you know, quick patching, or as I said, worse yet, if you tried to statically compile this in, um, then you're going to need to update your application, you know, recompile it and send out a new version for that. So the, most of the places that use GNU TLS that I'm aware of are going to use the shared library, you know, from the the Linux distribution or, and so those hopefully got updated relatively quickly. Um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of scary. Any, a machine in the middle attack, basically what that means is that somebody can get in right in the middle of your conversation between you and you know, your bank's website or whatever and steal your credentials and then potentially you know, loot your bank account or whatever. So, um, this, this could be kind of serious. As I said, I'm not aware of any exploitation of this vulnerability, but if you're using GNU TLS, uh, which is, you know, GNU TLS and OpenSSL are, are the two most common implementations of, you know, TLS that you're going to find on Linux machines. So, if you're using GNU TLS, make sure you're patched. Yeah, that's good advice, Jim. Um, I think part of the severity of this comes from the fact that, that TLS and new TLS, specifically OpenSSL, you mentioned it, they're relied upon to do these very sensitive things. Um, data that moves through them, you know, it could be things like payment card data, it could be things like social security numbers, it could be, you know, these very, very sensitive things that, you know, we, we wrap them in TLS and we send them off on the internet and, you know, we sit there and we say, please, please don't break, please don't become vulnerable because we rely on that. The internet as a whole relies on those protocols so much. So I think that's, that plays a big role into the severity of this. And it's important, um, you know, that we understand this, that we see, you know, that this vulnerability exists and that we do exactly as, as Mr. Jim Clausen says, update the patch always.
Yeah, well, and you know, over the last couple of years, we've seen more and more websites that are you know, going HTTPS all the time. Great, yeah, you know, wonderful for security. Mm -hmm. But it's you know, how are they how are they implementing the TLS in order to do the HTTPS? Yeah, hopefully you're not using SSL anymore. Hopefully you're using TLS. Hopefully you're using TLS 1.3. Uh, but, you know, how is that getting implemented? The underlying libraries there. Encryption is hard to do right. Um, mm -hmm. It's, you know, it's, it's very easy to do wrong. Um, so whenever I see these things, they, they definitely get my attention. Yeah, I agree. And, and um, I guess from a, I'm no developer, but I, I would assume from, from a developer's perspective, it's the sort of thing where, you know, you've got all these different dependencies that you're using to build your application. And it just sort of seems like TLS, once you implement it, you're good. I did it. You know, like I'm going to cross, I'm going to check that box off and I'm going to focus and worry about other things, uh, if, if at all. And TLS just sort of, you just sort of assume that it's working and it's good. Um, and maybe, you know, maybe it's a little intimidating because it is encryption. You know, it's, there's not a lot of people out there who are encryption experts. I'm certainly not an encryption expert. So. You know, it's, it is sort of that sort of that that game where it's like, well, you know, I implemented it, and I don't, I don't want to mess with it. I don't want to, I don't want to ever break it because you know that's how my site makes money or something. So there's those concerns that surround it, but it's it's still incredibly important to make sure that it's up to date, uh, especially when we have a vulnerability like this sitting out in the wild. So we're taking a look at the top ten most probed ports for the past week, and I figured this week. It might be fun just to uh, see what everybody else knows in terms of port numbers, because uh, I, I feel like I read these off every week, and um, maybe some of you guys have picked them up by now as to what some of these ports represent. So I'm going to go uh, back and forth between Jim and Andy and uh, keep you on your toes a little bit. So Andy, let's go. Number one, 23 TCP. Well, you're putting me on the, on the spot here. Um, yeah. Oh, come Hellnet on, you can do it. Telnet or FTP. And Jim for the steal. Telnet. There, there we go. go. There you go. Telnet. All right. So, Jim, ICMP 8.0. Let's see, that's echo request, right? Echo request. That's right. Uh, 445 TCP, Andy. That one would be SMB. That's correct. One we just talked about on the show. Great. 1433 TCP. Jim, back to you. Uh, Microsoft SQL Server. That's correct. All right, in fifth place, 22 TCP, Andy. That'd be SSH. That's correct. All right, Jim, this is a gimme. Uh, 80 TCP. Web HTTP. All right, followed by 443 TCP, Andy. That would be secure web. All right, so 3389 TCP. I think it's back to John. That one's easy, RDP. That's right, another one we talked about on this show. All right, this is a challenging one, I think. 8545 TCP, Andy, what do you think? That one's tough. Uh, I don't have any experience with that port, but uh, 8000 port, I don't know. It's gonna be some application specific thing. Very much so. Jim, do you know? I, I did not watch last week's internet weather, sorry. This one's been on for about a year, I think. 
8545. That is the Ethereum GF software or GEF. I'm not sure how you pronounce it because I'm not big into cryptocurrencies. Uh, but that was one that has a very interesting bug in it where um, this is one of those things that's supposed to be, again, on the inside of a network and not on the internet. And I think you can make certain API calls to make changes to uh, wallets, uh, Ethereum wallets. So, yeah, that was an interesting one. And then 81. This one, I think, is a bit of a trick question, but uh, do your best. It's often an alternate web port. Yeah. I'm not sure what they're going after. It's a very good one. Whatever they're scanning for right now, but it's often an alternate web port. Yep. And I think we actually were able to tie it to a very popular IoT device using 81. Uh, that's where I left it anyway. So let's go on to the most sources probing. And as you can see, there's a lot of repeats. I'm not going to go down through all the ones we've already talked about, but I will quiz you on the ones that are new. So 53 UDP, guys. Andy, what do you think? 53 UDP is DNS. That's correct. Uh, 8080 TCP, Jim. That's usually a, a web proxy or an alternate web port. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right. 27032. Hmm. I'm glad it's Andy's question and not mine. <laughs> uh, you have a, a small hint to offer? Uh... It is related to software that if you play PC games, you probably have on your machine. I mean, the only thing that comes to mind is Steam. And that would be correct. All right, cool. Yep. All right, 5555. Jim, what do you think? Android debug bridge. That is correct. Very good. And to round it out the bottom at number 10, uh, 5900 TCP. Andy, do you know it? I do not. Jim, do you know it? Is it VNC? It is VNC. All right. Nice. Congratulations, guys. Nice. This is pretty fun. So as you can see, I have those two highlighted, uh, Steam and uh, VNC, because they were the biggest movers this week. So let's take a look at those. Uh, 27032 UDP. Interesting that someone is scanning for this. It is Steam, and that is a client that you would usually have on your PC if you were playing games. Uh, it's a very popular market for buying games and also... There's social aspects to it. Um, in general, if, if you're playing PC games, there's a very high chance you have it. Now, why someone would scan for it, I'm not exactly sure. Uh, the traffic that we're seeing, there's a significant amount of traffic with faked source IPs. And that is IPs that we can pretty much tell are bogons uh, or not routable or should be like internal IP addresses. So I'm, I'm sort of leaving those off, although they are the, 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 um, the largest source of them. So something funny is going on. Uh, there's also traffic from Canada and a bunch of other nations, but by overwhelmingly, these are IPs that really shouldn't be routable. Um, Do you think somebody's using this for DDoS uh, to try to DOS off other game players or something? You know, it's very possible. I mean, usually I would expect to see UDP used in a reflective uh, technique. Basically, that is to, to try and, and bounce traffic off of a service and direct the result to somebody else. But with this fake source IP, uh, it's more likely that they're trying to send traffic directly to people who are users of the Steam service and have this port exposed on their own machine. So directly trying to DDoS them. It's a possibility. What do you think? Yeah, that was just a thought that occurred to me. If you're spoofing it, you know, UDP traffic is 
is easier to spoof than TCP. So absolutely. All right, we'll move on to the next one. Uh, Eighty-two ninety-one is something that was not on the list this week, but it was on the show last time I was on, and I figured I'd revisit it. This is MicroTik routers running WinBox, um, which is a, it's a management tool for the MicroTik routers. Uh, there was a couple of vulnerabilities related to it. As you can see back in May, we had a significant amount of scanning from the hundreds of thousands of sources, but has since really petered out. And there's, there's more than there was before, but certainly nowhere near as much. Uh, so I, I tend to think that whoever was scanning for that has found what they wanted or has stopped their operation. Hard to say for sure. And 5900 we talked about, and you can see the significant spikes in the last few days. So VNC is a remote control software, and it would be a target uh, for reasons that are that should be obvious. I mean, if you can log into a box over the internet over VNC, much like the way you would with remote desktop protocol, uh, you would have a full GUI interface to to just sort of poke around on that machine. So if someone's running VNC, uh, again, like remote desktop protocol, uh, it's meant to be administered over the internet or it's been misconfigured and left kind of unattended. Uh, it gives you a lot of power. So the sources for this one are primarily in Venezuela, Iran, Pakistan, and other nations. So I think the motivation is, is probably clear. Um, people are looking to try to break into whatever boxes happen to be having this. It's not indicative of any kind of machine. I mean, you could have servers running this. You could have it set up on your desktop machine at home if you want to reach into it. Uh, I think it's really opportunistic scanning. That's my take on it. Yeah, this is another protocol like RDP. Don't expose it to the internet. If you have to manage something remotely, you know, tunnel it through VPN. You know, don't expose it to the internet. Yep, 100% agree with you, Jim. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.